0: sessions hello i'm back um, we're doing a podcast today on hypercalcemia i'm here with scott and i am pretty excited about this episode because i can't think of anything much more exciting than calcium um, we're going to go through the usual sort of way we do this so we're going to start with a case and talk about the physiology of calcium metabolism bit about how it presents, some diagnostic workup, some differentials, approach to management. There's nothing really too groundbreaking here, um, except in, hopefully, a very enlightening exploration of this topic.
1: Yeah. Here we it's
0: go. Does that sound exciting? Scott was worried this wouldn't be very exciting.
1: Yeah, I just feel like I don't really have an opinion on hypercalcemia. You know, there's more kind of obscure topics. There's more common ones. It's kind of middle middle ground. Perfect know, exam for I just really
0: like it. I really like it.
1: Yeah, made the right decision in the yeah,
0: thanks. All right. What's the ridiculously named case?
1: That okay, we've got I'll, today? I'll, I'll say the case. Okay, you know, like the name. Yeah, I am what I mean. <laughs> right. So, Madam Butterfly is a 62 year old, previously well soprano opera singer who presents to her GP feeling crap and needing to duck out every opera in the middle to relieve her inflated bladder. The medical student Greg is in the clinic today, and Dr. Cripp sends him in to do the consultation while he ponders at the day's particularly difficult cryptic crossword. Greg has seen a patient with a presenting complaint of crap before and has developed a standard template that he always uses, fresh from the appendices of Tally. First, he takes a full zoo visitation history, draws a family pedigree of left handedness. History completes he moves on to examination. Her nostril measurements are unremarkable on gross inspection. Greg checks it for a high arch palate. Kaiser Flesher rings and Terry's nails. checks carefully for Gray Turner sign and performs Chauver's tests. Everything is completely normal. Perplexity the then sends off the routine first-line feeling crap panel of investigations and calls the lab to see if they can expedite the serum pineapple protein, D-dimer and cranial nerve conduction studies. Greg ducks next door and presents his findings and plan to Dr. Cripps, who nods vigorously and mutters something about 7across being an anagram. Madam Butterfly thanks Greg profusely for his very thorough assessment and arranges to have her seen next Tuesday with the results. So, <laughs> um, obviously, we're you know advocating for really good practice here. Beck, is that that's kind of the impression we're trying to give in this case? Is that yeah, right? Yeah,
0: so this is the gold standard. But I think as you're developing experience, you know, you'll you'll eventually get to that pinnacle. Um, so, so anyway, what do we call you? Madam Butterfly returns again and is seen by a, a real doctor this time. And while the pineapple protein has come back as inconclusive, mm, luckily classic. the
1: tests yeah. still worth include, sending though.
0: Worth sending, and luckily the test did include a UEC and a CMP, which showed a calcium of 2.8 millimoles per litre. So the normal range is 2.1 to 2.6, and hers is 2.8, so it's a little bit elevated. So Scott, how do you interpret serum calcium?
1: So as we said, the normal range is 2.1 to 2.6, but the really important thing is that in the blood, forty to f- about 40-45% of calcium is bound to albumin. So this means that your effective calcium, calcium your free calcium, um, will actually vary. So you can't just use your total calcium to estimate by itself. So how do we kind of do that, Vic?
0: So what you need is to work out what the corrected calcium is. Corrected as in corrected for the level of the albumin. There's two ways to do this. One is to do maths, and we could talk about the equation, but literally no one is ever going to remember it from this. Mm. The other way is to plug the patient's albumin number and the calcium level into MDCalc, which is the app that Australian medical students and doctors use, uh, and probably everyone in the world. And a lot of laboratories will actually publish the corrected calcium as well. So that's the one that you want to look at. Doesn't really matter what the total calcium is. You look at the corrected calcium. That, that's what
1: matters. So, Beck, isn't is there a way to measure the the corrected calcium directly to measure the active calcium that we care about?
0: So when you say active calcium, I imagine you mean the the ionized calcium, the free calcium. Yeah. Yeah. So that's the one that's physiologically important, and it would make sense if you just always used that. And actually, I in my practice tend to usually order that when I really want to find out exactly what the calcium is. But the problem is that on a practical level, often it's it's a specimen that is unstable and it doesn't get to the lab quickly enough and the specimen degrades and we never get the correct answer. So what I like to do is order both an ionised calcium and a corrected calcium when it really matters that you can interpret what the result is. And an ionised calcium is something that you, in some laboratories, will need to actually write on a slip, ionised calcium, and in other places you can actually just do a VBG a venous blood gas and the ionized calcium will just come as a freebie with that.
1: Yeah, but you've got to you've got to basically send the sample to the lab really quickly, which is why if you're a GP, you know, ordering outpatient tests and they're waiting on the desk for four hours, the calcium is also important. So, but can you teach me a little bit about calcium homeostasis? What are the main hormones involved?
0: Yeah, so PTH is probably the the key the key guy here. So parathyroid hormone and um, it comes from the parathyroid glands. So there's four of these in the neck. And I don't think I had really appreciated just how small they were, but they're about the size of a grain of rice. So there's four little grains of rice in the neck, kind of like the, the leftovers after you've finished your Vietnamese meal or whatever.
1: Yeah, well, I'd probably have a lot more food left on the table, but. <laughs> <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> this
0: is just what's in your beard.
1: <laughs> I get That's fair. That's yeah. Yep.
0: Uh, yeah. So four glands, size of grain of rice. They're kind of dutted into the thyroid gland and the action of the parathyroid hormone is to increase the plasma calcium and to decrease the plasma phosphate so it does opposite things to the calcium and the phosphate
1: yeah so just to reinforce parathyroid hormone increases your body's calcium that's its main thing that it does well,
0: it increases your plasma calcium so mm. i think that that's a key thing it doesn't um Yeah, so it increases the calcium in your blood through a variety of mechanisms that I'm about to talk about, um, but it doesn't necessarily increase the total body calcium. Yeah. It shifts stuff around. So I used to always get really mixed up when I was a med student about what what goes up, what goes down. Um, So the way to remember that is just to remember that one of calcium and phosphate goes up and the other one goes down. And to recall which one is which, just remember PTH stands for phosphate trashing hormone.
1: That's really good, actually.
0: Mm. So PTH makes the phosphate go down, so it must make the calcium go up. So, Scott, how does it actually work? How does it increase the plasma calcium?
1: Yeah, so there's three main mechanisms, three kind of sites where it kind of acts. The first is the kidneys. So um, parathyroid hormone increases renal tubular reabsorption of calcium and decreases renal reabsorption of phosphate. Remember, phosphate trashing hormone. In the bones, it increases the osteoclastic activity, so the breakdown of the bones, which releases the calcium and a bit of phosphate from the bones, and it also increases vitamin D, um, which, as we'll talk about soon, vitamin D or 25, sorry, what?
0: So what it does, it doesn't so much increase the vitamin D, but it increases the conversion to active vitamin D. So like... In essence, like philosophically, it's increasing the vitamin <laughs> D, so it's yeah. it's increasing the conversion of 25 vitamin D to 125 vitamin D, which is also called calcitriol, which is also pretty important itself.
1: Yeah, so increases the active form of vitamin D. The really important thing about activated vitamin D, 125 dihydroxycholic calciferol or calcitriol, is that it not only increases plasma calcium, but it also increases phosphate. So unlike the phosphate-trashing hormone, it increases both.
0: Yeah, that's good to remember. Um, the other thing about PTH is unlike everything else in the whole of endocrinology, it, um, it moves really fast. So the uh, parathyroid hormone acts in a sort of feedback loop like basically everything else, but um, every time the calcium or the phosphate level changes, um, the PTH will respond by increasing or decreasing. So the bone effects, the melting away of the calcium that's stored in the bones and putting it from the bones into the blood can happen in minutes.
1: Yeah, and um, what's, what's the what's giving feedback, the total calcium or the ionised calcium?
0: Yeah, so it's the ionised calcium, which we mentioned before is the active calcium. So just a, a tip for the uh, BPTs or anyone who wants to get really into the weeds, the way that works is, is there's a calcium-sensitive, calcium-sensing receptor in the parathyroid Uh, glands the bones and the kidneys that senses what the level of the ionized calcium is and then tells the parathyroid glands how much pth to secrete so in summary because we need to put in a little summary slide (laughs) i think we've said this a few times but pth is released from four parathyroid glands it increases plasma calcium it decreases plasma phosphate and it works via three main mechanisms, which are...
1: Yeah, so in the kidneys, increases reabsorption. Um, in the bones, increases osteoclastic action, so breakdown of the bones. it's a very cool movie, osteoclastic. <laughs> osteoclastic. And, um, and it also increases conversion to active vitamin D, calcitriol, which um, has those effects of increasing the calcium and increasing the phosphate. But the net effect of PTH is increased serum calcium, decreased serum phosphate.
0: Yeah, great. Right. Okay, so an approach to hypercalcemia. I think like almost anything else, if you pick up hypercalcemia, you need to start with a history, then examination, investigations. We'll talk about a framework for differential diagnosis. And the key thing here, if you want to sound smart on the wards, is to classify hypercalcemia as PTH-dependent or PTH-independent. And then we'll talk a little bit more about primary hyperparathyroidism and malignancy. So that's just a bit of a roadmap to the next half an hour or so.
1: So, so, um, signs and symptoms of hypercalcemia. So, as we've talked about, often it's retrospective. You send off, you know, often you just send off a CMP for no particular reason. You know, maybe you just want to know. You just want to know what their phosphate is. Um, But if someone has...
0: This is the sound of you breaking a bone. To just, that was just. I just banged. The, I just banged the table.
1: We're putting some sound effects into this one. But if you want to know what kind of symptoms, you might have heard of that old phrase um, of hypercalcemia: bones, stones, groans, and moans. Beck isn't a really big fan of that.
0: No, um, I, I think it, it doesn't encapsulate some of the main things, which is um, throne sitting on the throne, polyuria, and um, so a lot of patients actually present with fatigue, polydipsia, polyuria weakness, trouble concentrating, and that doesn't really fit in the bones, stones, groans and moans. But what, what does that stand for? What, are, what is bones all about?
1: Yeah, so bones, osteoporosis.
0: Mm. But you can get aching bones as well.
1: Achy bones. Stones. Stones. Um, you can get renal stones most commonly, and occasionally um, uh, gallbladder stones.
0: Yeah. What's groans?
1: Groans. So um, uh, constipation.
0: Yeah, what I don't know. <laughs> things make a person groan. I think that, um,
1: <laughs> yeah, to find the difference between groan and moan. Grown and what moaned. makes you I mean, groan and what similar. makes you moan?
0: Yeah, that's I don't like this.
1: Moan is meant to be a psychiatric problems. So yeah. it's been talked about trouble concentrating and,
0: um, and depression. Yeah. I've got a patient who, um, I, I was managing her hypercalcemia and every time I walked in, she just started crying. Um, it turned out not to be related to the hypercalcemia, which is something that I kept on telling her. Once we fix this, you're going to be really happy. And don't do that.
1: She didn't get happy.
0: No. Um, so I guess the main take-home point from this podcast is that depression is not only caused by hypocalcemia.
1: Mm. Well, it's multifactorial. So possible causes. So the big one that you're always thinking about, see someone in hospital, malignancy. So in your history taking, you want to ask them about B symptoms. So, you know, fever, um, night sweats, weight loss.
0: Yeah, and lumps and bumps.
1: Bumps and lumps. So now we're going to talk about past medical history. So the first thing you want to know is how long-term has there been hypercalcemia? So you want to kind of look back. Has there been hypercalcemia in the past? Um, And, you know, this will kind of maybe suggest what kind of ideology is going on. And we'll go through all the etiologies and the causes of hypercalcemia a bit shortly, but just give you a rough idea of things to ask on the past medical history. So you want to ask about features of end-organ damage from hypercalcemia. So what what are those, Bec?
0: So you've got to look at the bones and the kidneys. In terms of the bones, uh, do they have a history of osteoporosis? Or even if that diagnosis is not known, have they had broken bones or fractures? Mm-hmm. Have they had any renal stones? And do they have renal failure?
1: Yeah, so you also want to ask about known malignancies. So um, age-appropriate screening and or endocrinopathies. You might hear about MEN1, MEN2A syndrome, which can include a pituitary adenoma, which we'll talk about shortly, but also includes other tumors like pancreatic tumor, medullary thyroid cancer. Unless you're studying for exams, you probably don't need to know much about them. Um, And adrenal insufficiency can also cause hypercalcemia. Um, You want to ask them about granulomatous diseases like psychodosis or TB. Um, You want to ask them about malabsorptive states. And are there any medications that you can think of asking people about that?
0: Yeah. So just to flag, we're, we're talking here, we've talked about the complications. That was the end organ damage bit. And those things you've just said, the malignancy, endocrinopathy, and granulomatous disease, malabsorptive states, are all possible causes. Mm. So that's the past yep. history. Tick. Done. Now we go on to the medications. Medication history and compliance. Uh, you want to get an idea of if they're on vitamin D, uh, huge doses. Uh, are they taking... Biozides? are they on lithium? Are they on vitamin D? And in patients particularly with renal failure who are on sodium bicarbonate and calcium carbonate, and um, there's a rare cause of high calcium there that we'll talk about later called milk alkali syndrome. And just like a little, a little fun fact anecdote for you. Um, we had a patient recently who had crazily elevated calcium and nobody could figure out why. And it turned out that he had been worried that he wasn't protecting his bones as well as he should, so he'd been importing some vitamin um, vitamin D nasal spray from China. And he had mentioned offhand that he was using a nasal spray and everyone just discounted it, like, oh, it's probably saline. don't need to ask anything more about that. And it turned out that the nasal spray that he was using, he had, I don't know, four snorts or however you measure it like four snorts every five <laughs> hours um so so it had it had something like a hundred thousand units of colic in it so wow. he um was why are we mucking around with D? <laughs> <laughs> See This <spray>. therapeutic <laughs> potential here. yeah uh yeah so so take a good history for complementary medicines
1: yeah and family history not too much maybe ask about hyperparathyroidism in the family or familial hypocalciuric hypercalcemia or other endocrinopathies so mm. anyone... I just
0: yeah. yeah, I just asked. Does anyone in your family have a problem with their calcium? Well, probably no. What about examination? Is there anything much to look for specifically?
1: So not really. So the most important things you're looking for are signs of dehydration, um, you know, dry mucous membranes, underlay um, like refill, those kind of things.
0: Dry like,
1: armpits. Dry armpits is apparently more specific, is it? Or... Yeah,
0: this is just for the med conversations diehard fans from yeah. I think five years ago.
1: Um, so you're looking for constipation in you know, a double examination, uh, generalised weakness, fatigue. Um, you might see hyporeflexia, um, and you might see signs of malignancy like cachexia, lumps and bumps, cervical lymphadenopathy, other lymphadenopathy, low BMI.
0: So, so really, you're looking for really just dehydration or anything that might point towards a cause. And you do an examination on uh, Madam Butterfly, and it's completely normal. There's nothing really much to find.
1: Yeah, and in a practical sense, um, when someone's quite hypercalcemic, you, you'll be caref- really carefully assessing their fluid status to help guide your fluid management as well. So let's do a bit of a summary and talk about what we've discussed so far. So, Beck, what um, what are the main things to know about hypercalcemia?
0: Right. So hypercalcemia is often just an incidental, asymptomatic finding on pathology, but the symptoms can include moans, bones, groans, stones, and Thrones, sitting on the thrones with polyuria and polydipsia.
1: And constipation.
0: Yep. And constipation. And um, other, other symptoms?
1: So really common that aren't in our little classic moan, bone groan situation. Fatigue is really common. Um, and also the psychiatric symptoms are apparently those moans Mm-hmm. They're the groans, they're the moans, I think. One of those. All pretty, right, yeah, let's go kind on of with the
0: summary. <laughs> and organ consequences suggestive of chronic hypercalcemia include osteoporosis and renal stones and kidney disease.
1: And take a, a thorough past family medication histories, looking for specifically malignancy, in the endocrinopathies, and medications which might increase calcium, like lithium, um, calcium, vitamin D, or thiazides.
0: All right, I think we're on to the investigations now. So... Um, I got a call last night at three a.m. with a patient who had an isolated hypercalcemia, and um, I. How oh, high? It was four point one.
1: Okay, that's an appropriate. It was high, <laughs> and
0: call. so and so the response, like it always is in medicine, when we see a result we don't like, is check it again. Maybe it's not real, and I can sleep till the morning. Mm. Um, along with checking it again, what what test do you think um, you would you would want to do when you find a an elevated calcium? What other Investigations do you do at the start that are going to help you with the diagnosis? What are the cheapos?
1: Yeah, so PTH, mm. parathyroid hormones, help you differentiate between independent and um, dependent um, hyper, uh, hypercalcemia, um, 25 vitamin D, phosphate, UEC, looking for um, kidney disease as a cause, and um, thyroid stimulating hormone.
0: Yeah, if the calcium is very elevated, it's a good idea to do an ECG as well. So. What are you looking for on an ECG?
1: So it's the opposite of um, hypocalcemia. So with hypercalcemia, you can get a bradycardia, you can get AV block. Remember, you've got this kind of hyporeflexia, weakness, slowing of all your conduction, and you can get a short QT interval instead of a long QT interval.
0: Mm. So that can actually predispose you to, even though the patient's bradycardic most of the time, that short QT can predispose to tachyarrhythmias, like supraventricular tachyarrhythmias or even ventricular Tachyarrhythmias, but hopefully you're not seeing BT on your first ECG that you have a look at. So what happened to our patient? She had, what was it, a corrected calcium of 2.8, where the normal was 2.1 to 2.6. So are we we calling an ambulance or...
1: Send her in. So a reasonable approach would be to send her, you know, repeat the test in a week and in the meantime, um, instruct her to drink two or three litres of water a day and see if that improves things and send off some other tests while you're at it.
0: Yeah, I think that this is a really golden approach to general practice in general. Drink more water, do more tests, see me in a week.
1: Yeah, if you don't like a result, just repeat it.
0: All right, so we repeat the test and then she comes back. And now what have we got?
1: Corrected calcium is 2.7 millimoles per litre. Um, her so still a little bit high. Her phosphate zero point seven five. Her vitamin D which is
0: which is the lower limit of normal.
1: Lower limit of normal. So I wonder if there's some phosphate trashing hormone involved. Mm. Um, her vitamin D is eighty-two and her GFR is normal over ninety.
0: So just just for those who aren't really that familiar, so vitamin D or polycalciferol, the eighty-two is normal, so that's good. And EGFR, greater than ninety, normal kidney function. Yep.
1: Yeah. So, to reiterate, high corrected calcium, low normal phosphate, normal vitamin D. So, Beck, do you think this is a problem with too much calcium or it's an issue with too much parathyroid hormone? How would we work this out?
0: Yeah, so it's definitely a problem with too much calcium, but the question is what's the cause? What's the primary issue? And I think that the way to work this out is that we need to figure out if this is PTH independent or PTH dependent. And at the moment, we don't have a PTH. But we do know that there's discordant calcium and phosphate. So calcium is up, phosphate is down. If they're discordant, then PTH is likely the cause. So mm. you do send off a PTH and um, it comes back and it's 7.1. So normal range is 1 to 7. It's mm. not really that exciting. Is that the problem?
1: So I think this is a really good example um, of what Beck likes to talk about that, you know, when you have these kind of finite normal range of values you don't just look at them mechanically you think about what should be happening to you know things like the phosphate and calcium and whether it's appropriate in this circumstance so even though the phosphate was just in the normal range um, the fact that it was really low and the fact that her pth is high doesn't look very appropriate if her calcium is high because if her calcium is high and her pth is working normally her um, parathyroid hormone should be fairly low
0: yeah it should be suppressed so what we call that is It is elevated, but even if it was in the normal range at the upper left end, it would be inappropriate for it to be normal. So what you're looking for in PTH-dependent hypercalcemia is either an elevated or an inappropriately normal PTH for a high calcium. So approach in general, just to summarise that again, what's your sort of two-step approach to classifying hypercalcemia?
1: So we're going to go over this a couple of times because it can be a bit confusing. But first, you want to confirm the hypercalcemia with either a corrected or an ionized calcium, and or rechecking it. Then you want to check the PTH in relation to the um, the calcium. And if you've got a high calcium and the PTH is normal or high, it's probably that high PTH that's not being downregulated. So it's a PTH dependent hypercalcemia. So it's probably primary hyperparathyroidism. And what about if the pH is low?
0: If the PTH is low, yeah, yeah. so. If- then that's PTH-independent hypercalcemia, as in the hypercalcemia is existing independently of whatever the PTH is doing. And the most common cause in that situation is malignancy. So The most common cause of PTH-dependent hypercalcemia is primary hyperparathyroidism. And the most common cause of PTH-independent hypercalcemia is malignancy.
1: So if you want to kind of (laughs) – I think we're going to go a bit over time on this podcast. If you probably want to, like, duck out for a while, that's probably the most important fact here. Yeah. Look at the calcium. There's two really common causes. If the calcium is high and the PTH is high, it's pH-dependent. It's his parathyroid adenoma. If the calcium is high and the PTH is low, it's probably a malignancy. And you could probably pass through most of doctoring. Yeah. Unless you want to be smart like Beck and know all the details. (laughs) But that's been a bit dry. We're now going to be treated to some of Madame Butterfly's um, favourite opera. Welcome back, everyone.
0: Thank you. I found that really consolidating. So so for anyone who wants to soldier on and uh, hasn't left to go on your coffee break, we will continue on. So if it's PTH dependent, oh, we've, just said, yeah. <laughs> so we've just said it's almost all, always from primary hyperparathyroidism. So that's when one of those rice-sized glands is going rogue and has Increased in size and in activity. But there's a few other possible causes of PTH dependent hypercalcemia, and the others are much less common familial hypocalciuric hypercalcemia, which I'd love to rabbit on about but won't, and lithium related. So that's PTH dependent.
1: So if it's not PTH dependent, so if you've got the high calcium and the low PTH, most common was malignancies we talked about before and some other r- rarer causes, back.
0: Yeah, milk alkali syndrome. I've never seen it, but apparently it causes 12% of hypercalcemia. Um, vitamin D related. So these are the ones with increased activated vitamin D or 125 vitamin D. This is lymphoma, granulomatous disease like sarcoidosis or tuberculosis and vitamin D intoxication like our nasal spray guy. There can be causes um, related to a primary increase in bone resorption, so hyperthyroidism or immobilization. I've got a patient at the moment who's been lying in bed in ICU for the last six months and he's got very elevated calcium just because of that. And then really getting into the weeds, we've mentioned earlier adrenal insufficiency, fair chromocytoma, vitamin A toxicity.
1: So we've talked about causes of hypercalcemia. Now we're going to focus in on hyperparathyroidism and talk about the three different kinds. So, Beck, what are the three different kinds of hyperparathyroidism?
0: Yeah, so going, going back a step, hyperparathyroidism is just fancy words for increased PTH hormone. So that can either be primary, secondary, or tertiary. Primary hyperparathyroidism refers to the primary issue being that there's too much parathyroid hormone being produced. It's not a response to some other primary issue, that is the primary issue, and Most of the time, and if you're a medical student, all of the time, primary hyperparathyroidism is more or less synonymous with a parathyroid adenoma, which is benign, but it basically just means that one of the little grains of rice-sized parathyroid glands is going rogue and it's producing too much PTH. The other primary hyperparathyroidism Um, cause is gland hyperplasia which just means that all of the glands are overactive and you don't really need to worry too much about that unless you're studying for your physician's exams that's what happens in men syndrome so that's primary hyperparathyroidism secondary hyperparathyroidism a very different kettle of fish that doesn't actually really belong in this podcast Mm.
1: so be careful here don't get confused secondary hyperparathyroidism is you've got high parathyroid hormone that the body's producing as an appropriate response to low calcium. So, low calcium, high hyperparathyroid, um, ugh, high PTH. So, yep. and you often see that in the early stages of CKD, in, and that's chronic an important. chronic kidney disease. Yeah, yeah. Important management problem. And what about tertiary hyperparathyroidism? Mm,
0: so, this is when there's initially secondary hyperparathyroidism in the setting of renal failure, but the uh, parathyroid glands now autonomously overproducing parathyroid hormone so it doesn't matter what the calcium level is the parathyroid gland is overactive so remember that only primary and tertiary hyperparathyroidism are associated with hypercalcemia Um, for a little bit more information about the kidney disease related ones secondary and tertiary listen to our podcast on chronic kidney disease but now we're focusing on the hypercalcemia
1: so, now we've been kind of delving into Beck's favourite topic of hyperparathyroidism. We're going to come back to the main subject of the podcast, which is hypercalcemia. And we're going to remember there's two main causes: elevated PTH, or PTH dependent, and non-PTH dependent, with low PTH. And um, what investigations would you like to do for these, Beck?
0: Okay, so in PTH dependent hypercalcemia, the main thing is to try to localise a parathyroid adenoma. So, you do this with imaging. At the start, you do a parathyroid ultrasound, which is done through radiology, and then you contact your friends in the nuclear medicine department and order a parathyroid Sestamibi scan. This is a functional scan. It's good to do both of them because they can use the information from both to increase the chance of figuring out which of those parathyroid glands is overactive and enlarged. If that doesn't work, we've got a last-ditch imaging option, and that's a four-dimensional CT.
1: Yeah. So parathyroid ultrasound, sorry, dual parathyroid ultrasound and CESTNIB scan are most important. And what about for non-PTH dependent? So low parathyroid hormone, hypercalcemia.
0: Yeah. So we've said before that PTH independent hypercalcemia is malignancy, till proven otherwise. So you look for myeloma and you do a general malignancy screen. So you start off FBE blood film. You'll do a LDH, a full myeloma screen as well. So serum protein electrophoresis, serum free light change. Chains. You might do cancer biomarkers. You could do some imaging, like a CT chest, abdomen, pelvis. But you've got to be very much guided by your clinical uh, clinical findings and the situation. You might even yeah. do a CAT scan.
1: Patient demographic. Yeah. So what happened next to Madam Butterfly, our well-known patient? She went on to have a neck ultrasound and parathyroid systemibi scan, which identified a left lower parathyroid adenoma which, as we mentioned, is a benign, overactive and enlarged parathyroid gland that's been causing her parathyroid-dependent um, hyperparathyroidism. So we'll get more back to more general management of hypercalcemia shortly at the end of the podcast. But let's talk about the cure specifically for primary hyperparathyroidism. What is it, Beth?
0: The cure is a scalpel. Yep.
1: Yeah. So Madame Butterfly had a parathyroidectomy and was surgically cured
0: she sends Greg, the medical student, a bottle of Grange every year as a token of her appreciation for diagnosing her. Yes,
1: yeah, so we've used a bit of an unusual format. We started with that first case, which was that really common cause of um, hypercalcemia, the uh, primary hyperparathyroidism. Now we're going to do another case. So do you want to introduce the case, Phil?
0: Yeah, so we've got Smokey Joe. He's a 68-year-old former tobacco tester with known metastatic squamous cell lung cancer admitted under general medicine with functional decline and was sent to the ward pending blood test results. So let's just say you're the night med reg who chased the bloods and found that the corrected calcium was 3.7 so again that normal range 2.1 to 2.6 millimoles per litre and his ionized calcium was also elevated at 2.1 millimoles per litre. What do you do?
1: So first, you want to go and assess the patient. So first, you want to ask... If,
0: you, it's a blood test. You don't need a patient in the blood test.
1: Just call Beck, wake her up. She Just get the ball rolling, and mm. you can ring her again every hour. So um, first, you want to go and assess the patient, ask about symptoms of hypercalcemia. So remember, we talked about polyuria, constipation, fatigue, difficulty concentrating, and bone pain, although probably not super relevant at 2 in the morning. Um, and you want to specifically examine him looking at his fluid status to help you... Check for any obvious signs of malignancy and also um, check, um, kind of guide your further fluid management. And you want to take an ECG. Remember, it's the opposite of the um, hypocalcemia. You're looking for kind of blocked and slow cardiac conduction. You're looking for a sinus bradycardia. You're looking for short QT. You sometimes so he's got all this. He's got Smoky all this. Smokey Joe's
0: got all this. He looks yeah. kectic. He's dehydrated. Sinus bradycardia, short QT. He's even thrown in some J waves for fun, which is. Um, another ECG change that you can use in your MCQs, and we won't go into that.
1: Life in the fast lane. Um, And you do some further tests, let's just say, let's skip ahead a bit, and you notice that his PTH is suppressed, his vitamin D is 40, his phosphate is high normal, and his TSH is normal, and his GFR is 50. Not too bad for a former tobacco tester.
0: And you have a look back, and 50 is actually below his baseline, so he has a bit of an acute kidney injury. So he just to quickly summarize that, so he's got a really, really high calcium. His PTH is low, so already we're talking about this being a PTH-independent hypercalcemia. The problem is not the PTH, the problem is something causing the calcium to be high outside of that.
1: So the reason that we get um, hypercalcemia in malignancy, yeah, there's multiple reasons why you get that. The first one is that some cancers produce this protein called PTHRP, or parathyroid hormone related peptide, um, and um, this shares many amino acids with PTH. So basically this PTHRP works like PTH, but the body can't downregulate it because the cancer is producing it. The next cause, as we've talked about in kind of the body's regulation of calcium, is Bony metastasis causing osteolytic lesions. And this, this is often the, the cause that I've seen as a non endocrinologist when you know, you see these patients with really advanced cancer and quite high hypercalcemia. And then there's some other causes like lymphoma can work via um, activated vitamin D to increase the calcium.
0: Yeah, so they're the, they're the three primary ways. So again, the first one is PTH related peptide, mostly from actually a squamous cell carcinomas like Smokey Joe has. The second one is bony metastases, and the third one is lymphoma, um, acting through granulomatous disease pathways of increased activated
1: vitamin D. Absolutely, cool. So back back to our squamous cell carcinoma initial management. Um, So how are you going to manage Smokey Joe with his um, squamous cell lung cancer and widespread um, bony metastatic disease?
0: Yeah, look, I think the important thing in in any patient really is to know what your aim is of treatment. So particularly in someone with malignancy and really severe hypercalcemia, define what your goals of care are, their overall prognosis, and if it's indicated, then you're going to go on and do the rest of the management, which includes, firstly, um, monitoring. So thresholds vary but when you would decide to put a patient on cardiac monitoring, but generally if it's acute or if the calcium is Corrected calcium is greater than three, you'll we'll work them on a cardiac monitor.
1: Or if they've got any ECG changes. Um, the next really important thing is um, to give them lots of intravenous fluids. So how much do you like to give back?
0: So it really depends on the patient and how much they can tolerate, but really as much as possible. So I put up four hourly bags if the patient doesn't have heart failure or other reasons that they might end up being fluid overloaded. And you can even give furosemide to allow you to keep giving more fluids. IV fluids in themselves are actually really, really useful. So last night, I think it was about 2 a.m., I got the call that someone's corrected calcium was 4.1, and we gave them three litres of just normal saline, the best medicine there is, and by this morning, we were comfortably at um, a corrected calcium of three. So fluids work.
1: So if you think we're being a bit waffly, remember that Beck went to bed at one, (laughs) (laughs) maybe three hours of sleep. (laughs) Okay. Um, and definitely not a couple of beers as well, but just the important thing to remember with, um, the fluids and the fruizamide is you're not primarily giving the fruizamide to help the calcium. The fruizamide is what you give when you've already given too much fluids.
0: Yeah. All right. So, um, back to Smokey Joe, we've given him the fluids and the calcium is still very high. His ionized calcium is 1.9, which is still pretty dangerous. So the endo team come around, review the patient, and prescribe zoledronic acid and salicotonin. What's that all about?
1: So this is a bit advanced, and this is probably going to be in discussion with the endocrinology team, but um, these are a couple of the options for management. So the first one is bisphosphonates. Um, do you want to explain how bisphosphonates produce calcium?
0: Yeah, so bisphosphonates um, are a medicine you've probably heard of in the context of treating osteoporosis. So the way they work is they reduce the number and the function of osteoclasts. So That means there's a reduction in bone resorption. So the calcium stays in the bones and doesn't keep going out into the blood. It takes about three days to work. So it's not your your acute solution to a life-threatening hypercalcemia. Um, but once it works, it sticks around for a little bit, but not that long. So it's slow to, slow to act and also short-lived. It's not a perfect solution. The second um, medication that the endoteam have given this patient is salcotonin. I'll be honest, I've never given this before. This is very infrequently used. So I don't think we need to go too into it, but it's a common MCQ question, something worth knowing if you're a medical student, even though it's not commonly used.
1: I've never seen it in MCQ, but basically salcotonin is an antagonist to the effects of PTH. And moving on... (laughs) Um, so, what happened to Smokey Joe after Beck got her hands on him and gave him all her fancy medications?
0: So, his calcium improved and by five days uh, later, it was in the upper normal range. He was discharged home with some improvement in his bone pain after joyously reporting a successful bowel action. Happy ending and let's not talk about what happened next with his end-stage SCC.
1: Yeah, let's be a specialist. Let's focus on our hypercalcemia, not look at the bigger picture. Um, so, when we, would you ever use steroids, Beck?
0: Yeah, look, you use steroids in hypercalcemia only when there's particular reasons for it, and that's if the hypercalcemia is mediated by an excess in activated vitamin D or 1,25D or calcitonin, whichever of those names you want to give it. So that occurs, as we mentioned earlier, in granulomatous disease like sarcoidosis or TB, lymphoma, or vitamin D intoxication. There's nothing really else more that you need to know about that, unless you're an endocrinologist. So I think now we're finally onto our summary. end point (laughs) never thought
1: we'd get there to be honest
0: so if you remember nothing else we've got five key points for you the first one symptoms
1: so really important symptoms are polyuria and fatigue but you might remember that classic um uh phrase not even a mnemonic um moans i'm talking about um, constipation um, abdominal pain, um, bones, so bone pain, osteoporosis, stones, kidney stones, um, and groans, so psychiatric problems with eating, depression, and thrones, so you're getting polyuria and constipation.
0: The second thing is that PTH is the main hormone responsible for increasing your calcium, and think of it as phosphate-trashing hormone because it trashes your phosphate, so calcium goes up and phosphate goes down
1: as a serum yeah as opposed to um, activated vitamin d which increases both so um, the next important thing hypercalcemia can be classified as pth dependent where your pth is causing the high calcium or pth independent where you've got the high calcium despite um, the pth
0: so the most common cause of pth dependent hypercalcemia is parathyroid adenoma also known as primary hyperparathyroidism this is when The PTH is high and the calcium is high.
1: And the most common cause of PTH independent hypocalcemia, so low PTH, is hypocalcemia and malignancy. And I think we've probably said that about 11 or 12 times by now. So hopefully, um, (laughs) if apart from kind of the pain of getting through this podcast, nothing else remains. Hopefully that little fact remains.
0: Oh, come on, you do this voluntarily. It. If you've listened this one, you've enjoyed it. Um, on that note, if you do um, enjoy our podcast, please hit us up on the Facebook page.
1: Yeah, Facebook page, um, I think iTunes Reviews, and we've even got a Patreon now for people who want to actually increase the sound quality, which this episode hopefully sounds good. We will find out.
0: <laughs> All right, thanks for listening. Bye.
1: Oh